Uh, welcome back everyone, another episode uh, of The Few. Maybe you're having one of those days today where you just feel like everything's out of, out of your grasp. Uh, you're doing all the right things, meditating, being mindful, displaying your gratitude, filling out your journal. Everything you're doing is the right thing, but we're just not getting there. Uh, today's conversation is going to be a fascinating conversation and it's around a topic that I've actually always struggled with. And part of it, particularly in today's world, I think when we look at personal brand versus corporate brand, is really how do we show up to people when we're not there, when we don't show up. So our guest today is probably, well, would be uh, the world's leader in how to create brand, how to enhance brand, how to comprehend when your brand is in trouble. But beyond that, like many incredible international speakers, he's also morphed and looked at life through a different lens, a lens where we all find ourselves at some stage asking ourselves, what is the point? Why do we do all of this? So with no further ado, I'd like to introduce you now to the legendary. Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn what it takes to turn your dream into reality. Don't be afraid to dream big. But remember, dreams without gold are just dreams. This is The Few with Boo. Bruce Turkel. Bruce, thanks so much for joining me today on The Few. It's such an awesome opportunity to speak with you. Are you kidding? Me? The, the opportunity is for me, Bo. Thanks for so much for having me here. Oh, there's a lot of love in the room. Fantastic. Uh, Bruce, real simple. What's a brand? Oh, a brand? You know, you'll hear people say all the time when they look at a logo, oh, I don't like your brand or, you know, your tagline or whatever. It's none of those things. A brand is quite simply the place you or your product or your company occupy in someone's head and in their heart. To put it in high school terms, it's what people say about you when you leave the room. Well, I don't know whether my brand was that great when I was in high school, but uh, <laughs> knowledge knowledge I could have used as a 14-year-old. Bruce, before we jump into brand, why is it something that you're passionate about and you've built an enormous well of knowledge, your curiosity is boundless in the field? What happened? What connected you to this concept to have you all in on brand and helping people navigate what is conceptually quite simple, but when you're buried down at the weeds, can be made very overcomplicated. Yeah, I like to say that it's simple, but it's not simplistic. It's easy to describe, but it's very hard to do. And the way I got into it, I studied design in college. Design and art was always what I was interested in. And then I worked at design firms and ad agencies. Eventually, I started my own design firm. It morphed to an ad agency. And the more time I spent working with small companies, big companies, entrepreneurial companies, the more I realized that what they do, their function, what they spend all their time working on, investing in, promoting, by the way, no different than what any of us do, right? Where we go to school, what we study, what we try to learn, that that becomes cost of entry. You've got to be good at what you do. If you don't, you don't have a competitive advantage. However, once you do become good at what you do, you still don't have a competitive advantage because there's other people who are good at what you do. Any of us who believe we are the best at something, we're kidding ourselves. And so I tried to figure out what was it that made our customers and more importantly, our potential customers want to buy our clients products. And 
I spent a lot of time working on this. And what I realized was it was not about the product. It was not about the function. As I said, those things had to be good, but it was about something else. It was about the perception that those products or services occupied within the consumer's heart and mind. And that led me to branding. And that's where I figured out way, way back that where we needed to spend our time was helping my clients understand their brand, understand the messaging strategy behind it, and then create those things. And I got to do it for lots of great companies around the world and realized as I was doing it, wait a second, this isn't just about big companies. This is a universal application to people who are trying to make their lives better, to charities that are trying to change the world, to people who are trying to be better parents, that really having this understanding of who you are and why you matter, and then more importantly, being able to translate that understanding into why you matter to your audience's life, with that knowledge, you could do anything. It's a really powerful point you make, but what are the points I want to explore just on a personal on a personal level, Bruce, because it seems to be a common theme with people that live life on their terms that become one of the few. You started in design and design is a very detailed, very focused type of outcome. You wouldn't say that design is necessarily expansive thinking, but somewhere in there, you've obviously put two and two together and gone from designing specific tactical elements of a campaign or a business and then had an aha moment, which is like, you know what, what this brief is asking me to do isn't actually the brand. Where was there a moment in time where you started to see that more expansive cross-functional picture and move from design into that space? What sort of went through, was it an epiphany? Was it just a gradual movement? Well, there's a couple of questions and Boo, you were nice enough and gracious enough to invite me here, but I have to disagree with you uh, about design being not expansive. In fact, as I see it, design is incredibly expansive because it's the idea of using whatever tools, whatever physical laws, whatever creative opportunities you have to solve a problem. And in fact, although it turns out to be very precise and very constrained, that's at the end of the process, once you've gone through the process of design. In fact, I believe thinking like a designer is a principled way of getting to a solution. So I would slightly disagree about that. However, I did have a sort of road to Damascus moment. In fact, I did my TED speech about it. I'll spare you the long story, but simply put, when my first book came out, I was invited to do a book signing. It was about design and I was invited to do a book signing at a big design conference. And I showed up the night before and I set my little area up, you know, with all my Sharpie pens and all my books lined up. And in the morning, my daughter, who was, I think, six years old at the time, asked if she could go to the book signing with me. And I said, oh, well, of course. And we went down to the expo where the book signing was going to be. And there was a long line of people waiting in line to get books signed. Um, so she said to me, oh, but I left out. There was another guy, designer by the name of Steph Sagmeister, whose book had also just come out. And he was doing a book signing as well. So my daughter said to me, Daddy, are all these people here for your book? And I thought, well, you know, I don't want to be as egotistical as I'm feeling right now. This should be a learning moment. So I said, no, sweetheart, I'm sure some... Look at this amazing queue of people here to talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm sure some of them are here for Steph's book. So we walk into the expo. We couldn't see the tables. They were in the back because, you know, it's like exit through the gift shop. They made you walk through the expo to get to the trained monkeys. That was us to sign the books. So... We're walking along this long line of people. When we get to the end and we turn the corner, what I discovered was everybody in line was in Steph's line. And there was nobody 
in my, yeah, you laugh now. <laughs> it wasn't that funny all those years ago. Well, what I realized was that Steph's book and my book were released at the same time. Nobody had seen either one of them. And because they were coffee table design books, they were wrapped in plastic. So you couldn't even open at it, look at it. So was his book better than mine? To be honest, it turns out it was, but you didn't know that when you were in line. The question becomes then, why did people wanna buy his book? And they had absolutely no interest in buying mine. And the simple answer was, he had built a brand. Remember I said, it's not about function. He had created demand for something he was producing. I was kind of of the belief, if you build it, they will come, which is clearly not true. As the old saying, you know, what do they say? If you build a better mousetrap, the world will beat a path to your door. That's not true. If you build a better mousetrap, you'll have a lot of dead mice. That's it. And so it's incumbent on us as creators, as writers, as designers, as business owners, as athletes, as musicians, as human beings, it's incumbent on us to create our own message, our own story that then attracts the people and the opportunities for us to do what we want. By the way, when I say attract, this is not magical thinking. I'm not talking about you put it out in the universe and then you attract what you want. This is not an intention thing. This is actually figuring out why do I matter and why do I make a difference to the people I want to attract? Yeah, it's interesting. I want to go back to the design conversation we just had because we've got one particular type of work and two different perspectives. And what I want to just belabor this point a little bit is it raises something very interesting. But when I was at the Air Force, then I left and became a property developer and work with a lot of architects and designers. It's interesting as a client of design, I think that design is very blinkered and not very creative. I think what you've done, Bruce, though, is highlight the difference in the person who approaches the problem of design, where you've obviously come at design with a very expansive, hey, I'm designing something, but what's the broader appeal? What is the outcome the client is looking for here? And what can I design to give it? Whereas my perception as a user of design is it's very passive. So what I just want to explore on there is why did you view it differently to other people? What is it about Bruce that came at design that way? Was there something that you experienced at school? Did you seem to have a different approach about things? Was it when your family, just before we got to the show, you mentioned your dad was a super analytical, highly genius, intelligent human being, navigator in the Air Force. I think the way that you just explained how you view design is in itself a different view as to how most people would view design. Let's go back to little Bruce. How did you view the world? Well, so that's interesting that you mentioned, I mentioned to you that my dad was in the Air Force as you were. My dad became a developer and as you did as well. He had been in architecture school and then he left to enroll, to enlist in the Air Force at the very, very tail end of World War II. When he went back after he got out, he said that he really didn't have very much interest in staying in school because now he was a man returning from the service and he was back in school with a bunch of kids. And so he moved to Miami where I grew up and Miami Beach actually, and he became a developer and a builder. And so he worked with architects and he worked with all of the different folks that you're talking about. And he always believed that his job was to present them with the problem and then do everything he could do to allow them to solve it. Meaning coming up with the budgets, being able to build what they designed, but pushing them to come up with designs that not only solved his problems, but moved the world forward. And so I got a lot of education as a kid 
being with my dad, who was a, I wouldn't say he was a frustrated architect or designer. I think he was pretty happy with where he was in life, but certainly he had followed that route. So we would always go to art museums when we would travel and we traveled a lot. We would do that. He was a musician as well as I am. And so I learned a lot from him. And he also encouraged me to all my interest in art. I could draw, I can paint, I can write. I mean, I was always involved in artistic endeavors, but I think I also took from him and from my mom, who was quite an intellect, I think I took the other side of it that you don't find with a lot of art-minded people, which is the problem-solving part, the intellect part of it. I have that weird yin and yang that a lot of times you're gonna hear me talk about my own personal schizophrenia, which comes up a lot. So I, I'm a designer, but I'm also very meticulous and I'm very, or I'm an artist, but I'm meticulous and detail oriented in a strange way. And so I hadn't actually thought about it like that until you just asked me, but I have a feeling that had a lot to do with moving me towards what I was interested in. For example, although I went to art school, I have a bachelor in art, fine arts and a bachelor in design. I was never that interested in the fine arts part of fine arts. I can draw and I can do those things, but it was always towards a reason. I like to have a problem to solve. That's what I do really as a professional. I'm a professional problem solver. I have to believe when you were in the Air Force, and I know when you were a developer, you were a professional problem solver. I have a friend of mine who I wrote about in my last book, who was a professional tennis player. And I asked him what it takes to be, he made it, I think he was seated 200, which doesn't seem like very high, but if you think about the 200th best player in the world, that's pretty high up, right? And being able to do something, not enough to go pro by the Yeah, it's amazing. Not enough to play in the Olympics or, or do what he wanted to do, but so he was an amazing player. He said, well, you got to be a good tennis player. That goes without saying. He said, but the key to being a successful champion tennis player is loving problems. He said, because the whole game is you trying to give your opponent more problems than they give you. You are constantly solving the problems they give you, racing to the ball, trying to deal with the top spin, trying to deal with the placement. While you're dealing with those problems, you're trying to provide problems for your opponent. If you think about your time in the service, that's exactly what you were doing. And so in my mind, design is based on being given a set of restraints, a set of problems, and then having to solve them. As an artist, you don't have that issue. As an artist, you can do whatever you want. Whether it's successful or not is a whole nother issue. A little expression. You, yeah, but you have the freedom of that. As a designer, you don't. As a designer, you are working within constraints. And that's what I love. It's interesting. The problem solving, the love and passion for problem solving is another recurring theme we've had on the podcast with, with entrepreneurs who give up a nice life sitting in a big <laughs> corporate office and then go out and start scrapping again. It doesn't matter how successful they are. There's just always another problem. And unless you like solving problems, you're not going to enjoy being an entrepreneur. You're not going to enjoy pushing outside your comfort zone because every time you're there, it's another problem you've got to solve. You're in unknown territory. So I think what really telling there, Bruce, is Yes, there was an approach and your pathway to design, the expansive thinking led you down into that, what I call situational awareness, the big picture and the ability to sort of sit back and say, the Air Force used to say, use a big hand and a small map. It's like, okay, what are we trying to do here? Like, what does good look like when we're back on the ground? And then let's work out the details to get there. I hate to interrupt you, but that's what I used to do with our clients in the agency. And then I do with my clients now, which is I ask a simple question. What does success look like? If you invite me to speak at your conference and they always want to know, what do you speak about? I always try to turn the question around and say, okay, my talk is over. I'm now off stage. 
and the event is winding down and people are coming up to you and they're saying something about, wow, that guy was great or whatever. What do you want to have happened? Do you want them to say he was entertaining or, oh my God, this is the greatest thing I've ever come to or, wow, I didn't know about that. I can use that when I go to back to work next week. They're all absolutely reasonable, legitimate requests. But as your practitioner, what does success look like? How do I know how to make you happy? And if you can answer that question, because the biggest problem is people don't know what they want. I saw a funny thing the other day. It was for realtors, but it could have been for artists or speakers or almost anybody. It said, don't worry about AI taking over your business. Apparently for AI to work, the customers have to know what they want. And you mm. know, almost any industry <laughs> can laugh. Yeah, true. yeah, can laugh at that. But the problem is most people don't know what they want. If I ask them, in fact, we can ask all of your audience. If I ask you what you want, you're going to answer with one of three words. Don't say it out loud. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but you'll answer with one of three words. You'll use your own words, of course, but just follow the meaning. You'll either say, I want to be rich, I want to be happy, or I want to be fulfilled. Now, you might say rich, you might say well off, you might, but happy, content, whatever. But those are the three things people say. But if you peel the onion back further, what you discover is those things don't mean anything because what is rich? Does rich mean you want to have private aircraft or does rich mean you want to be able to pay the rent and cover your kids' medical bills? Rich to you and rich to me are very different things. Same with happy. Does it mean I want to be giggling all the time or I want to be, you know, you can go to an opium den if you just want to be smiling. So <laughs> I think people don't take the time and that makes it a design problem. You have to keep asking why. You're like an annoying little kid. Why? 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 until you come to that core essence and then you design around that kind of like the irritant and becomes the pearl inside the oyster. I guess Ted Lasso, when he was talking about curiosity and how that sort of took off as a theme around the world and, and how important that is. And I was just speaking to a tech company on yesterday and a young girl there was talking about you know, how do I find my purpose? Well, I was talking about, you know, finding it at the age of five and it's like, well, I think it finds you. You, you don't find it. And the only way it finds you is if you keep asking questions and then eventually you and your purpose will connect. When it comes to thinking expansively, like Bruce, it's an awesome conversation. It's like you can feel that you get it. It's amazing how often you, you throw to an audience, there might be a thousand people in the room and it's a very simple question is, what do you want to get out of life? What is your goal? And for a lot of people, it's like, right, let me think about that. It's like, how are you only thinking about it now? Like in this room, it's your entire life. It's everything you ever wanted. It's you and this ability to just become complacent and apathetic. And I'm sure you see that in businesses where they maybe had a great brand or they are a great brand, but through apathy and complacency, they start to lose the brand or things start to happen if they don't have awareness of it. So w when it comes to that brand awareness, not the awareness of the customer, your customer, but your own awareness. How do you stay ahead of the game? I mean, how do you continue to have awareness? What do you do that ensures that you're consistently relevant and that you don't end up a Kodak or a Blockbuster video or a, the brand damage that we're seeing now around Target and the woke movement and Bud Light? We're starting to see brands under an awful amount of pressure that having insane repercussions for their commercial outcomes look how do you navigate this complexity and maintain a robust brand 
Well, I think you just mentioned four companies, but two very different situations. What happened to Kodak, what happened to Blockbuster, is they got disintermediated by technology that they simply were not paying attention to, back to your point about being relevant and paying attention. What's happening to Bud Light and what happened to Target with the woke movement is that there was a movement manufactured specifically to get people upset in order to create other things that has nothing to do with their business. Nobody cares who Bud Light used as their sponsor any more than anybody cares what Target sold. What the people who cause those controversies care about is keeping their constituents angry and they can do it. They don't care about Target. They don't care about Bud Light. Nobody went after Kodak and nobody went after Blockbuster. I mean, you could say Netflix went after Blockbuster, but they didn't. Netflix simply had a different way to skin the cat that Blockbuster didn't see, or to your point, got complacent and said, hey, we have 14,000 locations. What do we care what they do on that little internet-y thing? So those are quite different. And I would say that the solutions for those clients are very different. But your meta question about how do you both find your purpose and how do you stay relevant, I would answer a couple of ways. First of all, the idea about relevance. Mark Twain said, or at least they claim Mark Twain said because he's quoted with everything. Who knows if he actually said it or not? But the quote is- um, Him and Einstein, imagine if they had dinner together, yeah. Yeah, right. You said that. No, you said that. Well, you know what they say also, don't believe everything that Einstein posted on the internet. So you have to be very careful. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So the, the quote though is the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you figure out why. Now, the first one you can do nothing about. You were born when you were born and you're not even aware you were born until a lot of years later. So that one's kind of moot. But the day you figure out why can be a continual lifelong pursuit of either spiritual or religious or theological meaning, if that's what you're into, or it could be professional, or it could be artistic. That's completely up to you. But some people, to your point, you knew what you wanted to do when you were five years old. Others are constantly rediscovering it. But the difference from that person to the person you talked about who's complacent and hasn't thought about it is exactly that. They haven't thought about it. If you don't think about something, it's not going to happen. You have to do the work. You have to do the exercise. You have to make the effort. Henry Ford quote, right? 99% of success is just showing up for work or 95%. You have to show up and do the work. The problem is many people live someone else's lives. You are a dentist or a lawyer because your mother wanted you to be a dentist or a lawyer. You went to this college because a guidance counselor thought it was a good idea. You are this religion because you were born into that religion or because your spouse said, if you don't convert to my religion, I'm not going to marry you or whatever. Again, I'm not taking sides here. I have very firm opinions, but they don't help anyone. The point is many, many people live other people's lives. And then they wake up one day and they say, What the hell am I doing? Is that all there is? Why am I doing this? But then they have a lot of constraints because by that point, they've already bought the BMW and the townhouse and they have the kids in college or whatever. And now they have all these constraints that keep them from moving on to the next level. So your first question, how do you find purpose? How do you find relevance? You look for it. You know, I don't think it's like happiness or love that you don't find it until you stop looking. The point is you spend the intellectual energy figuring out who you are and why you matter. You can call it navel gazing. You can call it being self-centered. 
but hey, you're the only one you got. So it seems to me that it makes perfect sense to read your instruction manual. Isn't it the same with everything though? Isn't it the same with love? Isn't everything ultimately the same that it comes back to you? It's ultimately your interpretation of love, for example, your interpretation of or perception of what a great partner is, your perception of a brand. Isn't it all the same? Like if I thought of myself as a brand and I walked into a bar and I wanted to either get married or just do something else for a couple of days or whatever, you can't go in there and just say, hey, I'm a good person. I want this. It's not going to work, right? I agree with that. I, I will say that what I've discovered is you're not a very romantic person, but <laughs> I will tell you that when I met- Many would agree, yeah. I don't know you that well, but I'm learning a lot. When, <laughs> when I met the woman who became my wife, I was 25, she was 23, and we've been married 37 years now. I don't think I had any perception of what I wanted in a relationship. I mean, I knew what I wanted that night, which did not happen. But I mean, we, we were amazed that we met as children and we've stayed together all these years and we want to stay together. We have both changed and become other people. And I can't tell you that I knew enough. I mean, I wanted Miss Shallow was the next guy. I wanted a woman who was beautiful and, you know, was had a great smile and a great figure and all those things clearly. And I was first taken when I saw her. I was like, oh my God. But I don't know that I was smart enough to make the decisions that led to a lifetime of mostly happy times together. And, you know, I had been doing plenty of dating before I met her. And so I don't know that I was willing to give that up. I had no interest in being married. I wanted to ultimately marry her. Very different. I very much have a romantic view of life and I was very much a romantic pilot. But I, but one thing I've sort of started to come around to is the subconscious things that drive us, right? And one of the things I've been reading about, particularly with love and commitment is people say, oh, I was doing this and doing this. And then it was just this moment in time where I connected with this person. And then there's a philosophy, which is there's a degree of that, but there was also a moment in time when you decided that actually particularly with men, I'm ready to settle down now. And within that window of a year, you start to effectively dial it down and go, ah, oh, this is the person that is pretty, is fun, has a nice fit. You've already got the model built up. It's just the timing to apply the model. And I would say that's the same with any buying decision in that you have an idea of, of, of what car you want. You have an idea of the house. Then the timing kicks in. And you commit. I just think people don't value time or comprehend the importance of ideas and time because new ideas take a lot of time. And because they take a lot of time, people give up and they don't do them. And equally, when people buy something, they typically buy impulsively, right? They don't. You know, so if you've got a great brand, oh, I trust the brand I'm going to buy. Like, I, I don't need to think about it. Here's Bruce's book over here. I don't know who this guy is. Oh, I just saw this other guy win a design award. I'll go and buy that book. I mean, I'm just playing with, I don't know. I mean, I, I certainly don't know how humans work, but I'm just curious because I struggle with brand. You know, I always have, whether it's a personal brand as a speaker, afterburner, as a group of fighter pilots, how do we convey to the world's fighter pilot thinking and how great it is? Because a couple of things, and I'm really interested to get your opinion on this. When you start to nail your brand, you're also starting to close off avenues. And you're starting to put yourself out there on a parapet. So is there a degree of fear or is there a, it's much easier in life pretending you appeal to everyone all the time, right? Because you don't have to, what we would call in the Air Force, the gray, you're the gray man. You're not controversial. You're not going to get ever get in trouble. But when you start to go out as a brand, are you not now starting to make some sort of statement around what your product does? I guess a, a medical journal is not a best-selling book, but someone that interprets the medical journal and can tell the story in a way that has an impact on an individual, that becomes a bestseller. 
Hi, it's Boo here. If you're enjoying these episodes of The Few, please show your support by leaving a review. It costs you nothing, and the more reviews we have, the better guests we can reach out and bring onto the show to help you close the gap between what you want and where you are today even faster and help you on your journey to become one of the few too. So I'm trying to unpack when brand makes this impact and maybe what are some of the barriers that stop people from creating very clear and obvious brands, uh, be it your own brand as you or as a CEO, the brand of your entity. I would say that the best brands, the CEO is the brand when you say you or the CEO of a brand, you name the brands that you put at the pinnacle of the best companies, the best brands. You can tell me who the CEO or the founder was, whether it's Steve Jobs or it's Richard Branson or it's Ferdinand Porsche or Enzo Ferrari, or we can go around the world. You could pick Ishiro, Honda. It doesn't matter where you do it. That personality is what comes through. What I think that we are taught not to do over the years, especially through the Western educational system, is we are taught to sublimate who we are in exchange for fitting into a bigger whole. And even though we talk about the Western philosophy, Western liberalism being about independence, the independent self, all of that is true, but the whole British colonial school system, which became the Western school system, is about reading, writing, and arithmetic so that clerks sent anywhere in the world could send back reports about how much tea was sold and how many ships came in. And they understood the same language, not idiom, but they understood how to give that information. And so we are the inheritors of that system. And therefore, we are taught to sublimate ourselves. So that's why, you know, all lawyers used to look alike, dress alike, accountants used to dress alike. And you could kind of tell when you were in school what your friends were going to be, all, even artists wearing the bright colors and the crazy hair. But even that was conformity within a theoretical statement of nonconformity. And I think what you discover, if you are attuned to these things, that at some point in your life, what you're selling that makes you more valuable than your competition, or even than your previous self, is yourself. People don't buy what you do. They buy who you are. We don't support that enough. I think it's critical. I, people don't buy what you do. They buy who you are. And I'll give you a, for instance, that hits home. You said to me afterburner, and we're a group of fighter pilots. So the great brand there is the minute you tell me fighter pilot, boom, a picture emerges in my mind. I'm starting from somewhere. I'm not thinking a guy in overalls with paint splattered on him on top of a ladder, right? I'm not thinking of a woman working in a bakery, putting something in an oven. I have a very distinct impression, whether that impression came from my experience of my dad being in the Air Force, or it came from watching Top Gun, or it came from watching being in a war-torn country. We all come to our suppositions differently, but there is a brand language that fighter pilot says. Now, are you guys interchangeable? You would argue, no, we're not. If you want this, you're going to bring so-and-so, and if you want that, you're going to bring so-and-so in. The company that I think did a brilliant job of overcoming that problem was the Blue Man Group. Just take a guy, shave him bald and paint him blue. Teach him how to do the act. And guess what? If the star of your show says, hey, Boo, unless you pay me double, I'm quitting, you would say, great, I own the trademark blue paint. Take off the blue paint and beat yeah. it. Because I can shave another guy down 
and paint him blue and teach him how to do the act. It was brilliant. But yeah. even in its brilliance, the blue man became the self. So in your business, you guys put on your jumpsuits and you zip them up and you have the call names. I know I'm going to get the nomenclature wrong, but you know what I'm talking about. But you have the call names, the dog tags, and all of the paraphernalia tells me what to expect from the brand. But still, I fall in love with one of you and I want to listen to that guy. I want to hear what she has to say. At the end of the day, it's what we bring to the table. And I believe that the sooner you learn that, and the happier, the happier you will be, the more successful you will be, and the less frustrated you will be wondering why you're not living the life you want to live. I feel like that's changed or accelerated with social media. I feel like, you know, 15 years ago, you probably didn't need to be known as an individual, pre-LinkedIn even. You know, you were just ran a company or you're just, you, you ran a sales team, you're BBDO, you ran a big advertising firm. You know, whereas now it's very much who's the brain behind the brand and the prolific content creation, because maybe in five years, AI will be doing it all for us. But right now it's still humans that have to get in there. In the military, we call it the commander's intent. Like, yeah, the, the organization has a strategy. Yeah, we have a plan, but we always saved a little bit of moment for the human to say, look, here's what I actually mean by all of this. Here's what it means to me. Here's why it's important to you. So even at that, in a military level, where everyone thinks you just do what you're told all the time, you just follow by the book, you don't. You still need an individual, a leader, a thought leader to inspire, to move forward. Now, Bruce, I want to just touch on something else that you speak about, because I think this is really important in terms of helping people comprehend we've all got the same kind of tools to work. You talk about music and you talk about how there's seven notes that musicians have to play with, and every musician crafts those into an outcome. Analogy I use as well as, there's a certain amount of food in the world. Chefs have the same base ingredients, but the way they combine them is the difference between a two Michelin star restaurant and McDonald's. What is the differentiator of brilliance or what sets aside the hack to the aspiration? And, and I, don't, I don't think you necessarily need to be a genius to do things. You know, I think some people are geniuses and through their genius, they're successful. And other people are there because they just never give up and they just practice and practice and grind it out and if you look at The Last Dance and Michael Jordan, who pretty much says, oh, I wouldn't have been who I was if I didn't practice the extra hours and put in the extra work. But in your mind, if everyone has the same notes, why is there a Bach or a, or a Coldplay? And then why is there me using two fingers on the piano? What's the difference? Well, so first of all, you mentioned Bach. So Johann Sebastian Bach, and maybe I won't go with Coldplay, but certainly Paul McCartney, they're just at a whole nother level. They come along once in generations. And we can name a few of them in music. We can name a few of them in art. I mean, you can give me the same oils that Rembrandt had. There's nothing I can do with them. There's talent. There's ability. There's drive. There's education. There's all those things that allow you to express what you want to express. However, who is to say that a Rembrandt or a Delacroix or a Vermeer, which are painted with such exquisite detail and attention and understanding of light or a Da Vinci is more valuable, more successful, or more glorious than a line drawing done by Picasso or Saul Steinberg. The thing about art, the thing about human endeavor is that there's so much more to it than the simple empirical ability. And to use the world you're from, you know, you knew when you got into a jet, the pressure of the oxygen tanks, and you knew how much fuel you had, and you knew the acceleration rates. And I know they drilled G-forces into you and all of that. 
but there were pilots who could do things that you couldn't do with that same airplane. And you had the ability to do things that others couldn't do because we bring something to the table that differentiates the experience. So every musician takes those same notes. Again, we're talking about people who have the right amount of skillful ability. Remember that, that skill is not creative. You know, I, I was a trumpet player for years and years. I was classically trained. I could read music and I could play whatever was on there. That was not a creative endeavor. I was following instructions. That's like painting by numbers. I was good at it. I used to play in a salsa band and I could read and I could sight read. So I could, but I couldn't, if they said, okay, just play, I couldn't do it. I didn't have a creative, that was a skill set. When I learned to play harmonica, I specifically learned only improvisational because I wanted it to be creative, not to be skill set. So you have to have some level of skill. If you don't, you can't move forward. And that could be a physical ability. It could be whatever training. But once you have that skill, the question is, what do you do with it? Stevie Vai and Stevie Ray Vaughan and Prince and Eric Clapton play the same notes. They could play the same guitar. I have a guitar that says Eric Clapton on it, but guess what? It doesn't sound quite as good when I play it. We bring <laughs> something to the experience and that's our humanity. And that's what other people choose. That's why they want what we do. It has to solve their problem. The value of your services are directly related to the value of the problem you solve. So we have to be able to do that. But once again, what changes your chef analogy was perfect. It's not having the cinnamon or having the cumin or having the tofu or the lobster or whatever. It's not even knowing what to do. I can follow the recipe. It's adding something of yourself into it that changes the experience. One of the, I guess, challenges for marketing and sales teams at the moment and being able to support and distribute brand is you're talking about a creative element and we mentioned romantic view of the world and the creative side. Yet the world is very much going down an analytical path and, and a lot of data, a lot of measurables. I certainly see a lot of confusion and passivity in organizations because of this data. How do you ensure that from a brand perspective that you're maintaining that creativity? How do you see that brands are managed as we start to move into this modern data enabled every single purchase beep through a pulse machine, you know? all of this overwhelm of, hey, we've built a marketing campaign, out it goes, let's see what happens, tsunami of data. Like, how do you keep on top of it all? And is it a challenge that business needs to be aware of? Of course it's a challenge. And I would suggest that to smaller minds, the data becomes the easier thing to follow. Look, here's what happened. However, keep in mind that every bit of sales data accumulated is after the fact. So the question becomes, is the value in being the coach or being the scorekeeper? The data collectors, the aggregators are scorekeepers. They can tell you what happened. They don't have a clue what's going to happen. They'll tell you they do because they'll say, based on the data, here's what's going to happen. Really? So how many people predicted COVID? Far as I know, none of them. You know, as well as I do, that when you and I are out at conferences speaking, quite often they'll have a futurist on the stage. And I think that's a bunch of hokum. They could be a presentist. They could be a currentist. They don't know what's going to happen. Assumist. They can tell you what might happen. They can tell you what could happen. They can tell you what maybe is going to happen. 
but they don't know what's going to happen. I mean, my joke is if you walk into a fortune teller, you know, you want to get your fortune teller. You want to tell about, find out about love or money or whatever. If you walk into a fortune teller's tent and they say, hi, what's your name? You should turn around and walk out, right? If they were really fortune tellers, <laughs> guess what? They wouldn't be sitting in a tent or at a carnival, <laughs> right? They would be living off the Apple stock that they bought in 1999. So yeah, all the data is great and it's great scorekeeping and it worked for Moneyball and I love the Michael Lewis book and I get all that, but nobody knows what's going to happen. And the only people who actually throughout history have shown us what's happening in a meta sense are artists because they're tuned differently. They have ways of demonstrating what, I mean, if you look at what Warhol did or what Picasso did with Guernica, they were telling us what's going on in the world, what's happening. And so I think there should be a healthy combination of both. I don't think one works without the other. What happens in society is we do pendulum swings, right? So right now, everything is going in the pendulum swing area of data. However, if you were investing in Bitcoin based on data, guess what? You can't afford to watch this podcast right now. So that data didn't work out so well for you. Yeah, it did for a couple of people up front, but chances are knowing the data didn't help you know that what day uh, all FTX and all those other companies were going to go belly up. I would be careful about putting too much faith in only that hard empirical view of what happened. Remember the ED at the end, it's past tense. I think you really nailed it there. And what I find really interesting is just when you spoke about the different view of the future the artist has, as opposed to the analyst. And one of the kind of, I guess, thoughts that are and concepts for me that's coming together, especially with a background as a fighter pilot, is our inability as humans to feel and think and do at the same time. We're only capable of one thing at a time. So the more the more the more buried you are in doing things, like practicing your free throw and focused on that, the less awareness you have of what's going on around you. And for me it was really making the transition from being a CEO and running businesses into getting into this, what I guess people ostensibly say thought leadership, but just having more time to think. And just based on what you're saying, I'm just wondering whether artists have more time to think. We're, it's a totally different part of the brain. And why fighter pilots have wingmen is because one pilot's busy flying and literally on the airplane and trying to find the bad guys and the wingman's sitting back, keeping an eye on the big picture. We look after each other and say, you know what? I think you're off on a tangent here. You're getting lost. You're not thinking about what you're doing. Let me take over for a bit so you can get the big picture back and we'll swap over so we're fluent leadership. I think the same can be said with analytics now and potentially brand awareness where you're so caught in the weeds, you lose sight of the big picture and your brand implodes. Are there any sort of great examples of people doing brand wrong and just imploding unnecessarily or on the flip side, brands have done it exceptionally well? Well, the exception, you know, it, it's easy. It's an interesting distinction because you know the old saying, the victor writes the history, right? So the ones that have done it exceptionally well are the ones that are there and you can see them and yeah. you go, wow, that, that, I get that. And the ones that didn't do it so well aren't around anymore. And unless you keep track, we are very quick to forget about those. I mean, look at how many companies that had a superior product lost the war. Betamax was the better videotape technology, but they didn't make it. For years, Apple was the better technology, but until Steve Jobs came back, they hadn't made it and they could have been on the dustbin of history, but Jobs came back and figured out how to fix the brand first and the technology 
followed. And there's who got it wrong biggest of anybody money-wise was New Coke. Look what they did and look how much, how can a company that smart with that much data and that much following and love and history, how could they get it wrong? But you mentioned too earlier, Kodak and Blockbuster, they got it wrong because they didn't know what business they were in. Kodak thought they were in the putting silver nitrate on paper and then putting it in chemicals to react with light to give you a photograph. That's not the business they were in. They were in the memorializing memories business, and it took them a long time to figure that out. Blockbuster was not in the a room where we hand you videos. Blockbuster was in the filling an hour or two for a consumer business. I'll give you a great example of someone who got it right. A friend of mine years and years ago was on an airplane. Uh, he was sitting up front. He believed that flying first class was the place to get business. And he looks next to him and the guy sitting next to him is Tom Monahan, the guy who owned Domino's Pizza in the US. And um, it was, I guess, before Monahan was successful enough to have his own jets. But my friend Bob turns, they introduced each other. He goes, oh my God, I love Domino's Pizza. It's my favorite pizza. And Monahan said to him, no, it's not. And he goes, no, no, it is, it is. And he says, no, it's not. There's a little place in your neighborhood that has a coal-fired oven, or they use buffalo mozzarella, or they use mama's tomato sauce recipe. That's your favorite. And to be fair, Bob said, oh yeah, that's DiNapoli. Yeah, I do love that. But I love Domino's. I didn't mean it as an insult. And Monahan said to him, it's not an insult. I'm not in the pizza business. Bob looks at him and says, what? And he goes, yeah, I'm not in the pizza business. I'm in the, it's late. You and your partner both work. You got home late. Nobody feels like cooking and the kids are crying business. I'm in the, you brought the guys over to watch the game. There's no food in the house and your wife is pissed business. He said, I'm in the problem solving business. He said, that's why their original campaign was 30 minutes or it's free. He said, because in 30 minutes, you have no alternative. More than 30 minutes, you could go to another restaurant, you could pull something out of the freezer, you could run to the grocery store. But 30 minutes or less, I am the only alternative. And that's the business. I'm in the problem, back to, we've come full circle, boo. He was in the problem solving business. And that goes back to what you and I talked about. You need to know who you are and why you matter to your consumer. And it's not because of what you do. It's the difference between what you sell and what you exchange for money. So Domino's exchanged pizza for money, but what they sold was solving a problem. Uh, Volvo exchanges automobiles for money, but what they sold was the sense that I am a good provider because I believe in safety because I'm taking care of my children and my wife. And if you look at the best brands, they understand clearly the difference between what they sell and what they exchange for money. If you ask less successful businesses, they'll tell you, if you say, what do you sell? What do you exchange for money? They'll say, it's the same thing. It's whatever I do, legal services or garbage pickup or dentistry or dinners, doesn't much matter. They don't see the difference. And that difference is what branding is all about. You're right. It's conceptually very simple. And as you talk, I'm thinking about my own brand journey and it's like, yeah, you know, it's also that risk where it has to be so instinctive for, so for example, uh, my son had all his mates over to watch a big football game here and it was like, yeah, we got Domino's pizza, right? Cause it was just, you don't even think about it. You're just like, that's it. We know that's the get out of jail free card. They'll be there in half an hour. The boys will be fed away we go. And no one said to you, this is the best pizza I've ever had. They were just stuffing their no. faces. <laughs> yeah. The way that 
we are as humans and we try, what's the thing we're trying? I don't even know as the buyer that that's what I'm thinking. I'm not sitting there saying to myself, you know what? I need to get some sort of food that's going to be here quickly because the guy, the boys are here. They're so instinctive. Clearly, people that are good at brand, they're tapped into the instinct of humanity, not the thoughts that they have. Just the, it's so raw and visceral, the problems that they solve. And it's almost like we switch that off. Like, how do we, when you say it, it's so obvious, but you just wouldn't think of it, you know? And that's that this nuance of thinking, there's the thinking about, you know, being proficient and skillful at the trumpet. And then there's the expansive thinking, which is, let me just take this trumpet and create something that's never been created before. Same tool, same skill set, completely different application and outcome. So Bruce, life is a journey. And to, I guess, loop back to what's the point of it all and getting to that moment in life, little Bruce, you know, he's, he's 14. He's got some idea about what he wants to do. He's loving his design living his best life what's the one piece of advice you would have given yourself if given the opportunity to travel back in time that may have helped accelerate your journey or iron out some of the bumps that got you to where you are today to kind of reduce the angst that you experienced in the journey when i was a kid i always used to love to draw and of course i wanted to be better at it so i used to draw a lot i still do actually and I always wondered when my drawing style would emerge. You know, I would look at the artists I loved, uh, Will Eisner or, or Saul Steinberg or whoever, and they all have a very distinctive style. Many of them had skill sets that I was much too young to have access to. But even so, the way Al Jaffe would draw or Don Martin would draw, you know, the way they do a nose. And I, so I would copy which whoever was my uh, flavor of the month. I would copy their drawing to try to draw like them, Jack Davis and all these great cartoonists. But all I saw was I was trying to make my drawings look like theirs. And I always wondered when my style would emerge. And over time, years go by, years go by, and I have a distinct style in the way I draw. And I can see some of my influences, but I draw, I keep these sketchbooks and I have hundreds of them. I fill a few, I fill one a month or something. When I used to go to meetings, all I would do in meetings was draw all the people in the meetings. And so I have boxes and boxes and boxes of them. And somebody suggested that I should put them in some order and go through them and there's some value in there. And I found some from when I was in junior high school, maybe even before then. And when I look at them now, what I see is there is me copying Jack Davis. He was from Mad Magazine. Or there is me copying Will Eisner. He drew The Spirit. Or there's me copying Walt Kelly. He drew Pogo. So I see that person's, I see what I was copying, but I see my style inherent in those drawings. When my son was a little boy, his favorite movie was Aladdin. And you have kids and you know that kids will watch a movie a thousand times until you want to go out of your mind. Back then, it was a videotape. I wanted to pull the videotape yeah. out, right? But in the movie, Robin Williams plays the genie. And in the movie, Robin Williams playing the genie imitates Jack Nicholson and Schwarzenegger and a bunch of other movie stars. And my son, of course, knew the movie by heart and he could imitate that character. But what I realized was watching him didn't sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger. It sounded like Robin Williams doing Arnold Schwarzenegger, like whatever those little <laughs> subtleties were, because he didn't yeah. know better. That's how he learned it. And so what I've realized is in all these years of working so hard and going to art museums around the world and studying art and getting all these degrees and doing all this stuff, I was already drawing like that when I was four years old or six years old or eight years old. I think the lesson there, and it's the same with music and it's the same with writing and it's the same with so many things. If I could have told myself something that would have made my life easier, the angst 
would have reduced the angst. And by the way, would still do it today because knowing something intellectually and accepting it emotionally are two very different things. Mm, very different. But I think it's a very simple three words, which is you are enough. I was enough. I already had it. There's a great John Lee Hooker song, Boogie Chillin'. And in the song, he says he, he was up late one night and he heard his mom and dad talking. And his mom says, why has that boy got a boogie woogie so much? And the father says, because it's in him and it's got to come out. Yeah. <laughs> right? And <laughs> you already have it inside you. It's already there. My favorite movie in the world, Wizard of Oz. The very end, Glinda the Good Witch says, you had it in you all along. It's the signature, actually, on my email is her quote, which is, you always had the power, my dear. You just had to learn it for yourself. The whole reason she had to do that whole yellow brick road with those three freaks was because she had to learn it for herself. And man, if I would have known that when I was 14 or 16 or starting my business or gosh, if I would have known it yesterday, think of how much better, how much easier things would be. It's a incredible insight. And it's interesting, the commonality in the stories and the journeys to people that you know, live their best life, have always pushed the boundaries. Inside of me, sometimes I think, well, that's just part of it. The angst is the, the angst is just, just as important as the moment of clarity. The angst can drive you. It certainly can drive you. Plenty of people have done things to overcome awful, awful situations. Yeah, yeah. But it's a, it opens that the other can of worms around the nature and nurture, doesn't it? But Bruce, look, I'll tell you, what, we'll have to do this again another time because we are talking each other's ears off. We're going to be here for hours. You're busy. I'm looking forward to coming and meeting you over there over in Miami I'm just so honored and grateful for your generosity today uh, sharing your own journey and the insights into people on these incredible never-ending brand journey really you know I'm 48 I still can't kind of figure it out it still evolves all the time and just when you think you nail it at this ephemeral kind of environment it, it changes again and I think for any organization or any individual that's grappling with that and just needs that different perspective which is so important in life you just see it through someone else's eyes i think you've got so much value to add there if you're looking for bruce his insights whether it's speaking or coming in and getting his hands dirty uh, consulting and advising inside the organization real simple his website's bruceturkel.com it's down uh, in the show notes so scroll underneath the youtube page here uh, the video and you'll find it there hey bruce just wonderful a really incredible way for me to spend an hour thanks again so much for coming on the show thank you for inviting me boo i really appreciate it you know what i love i do a few of these now and again you actually did your homework you spent time thinking about this that makes all the difference in the world it really made me feel welcome and wanted and man i think there was some great stuff that you brought up so thank you very very much thanks mate all the best well that wraps another episode of the few and i'd like to thank our partners without whom this episode wouldn't be possible Firstly, Ode Management, an organization that brings world-class speakers into your event or organization to make a profound impact on your people to deliver the results that you want. And Afterburner, real-life fighter pilots, a team of men and women who for the past 25 years have helped organizations surpass their expectations, learning the tips and tricks fighter pilots use to win 98% of the time. If you enjoyed the show, please show your support by subscribing to the podcast, the few with Boo or our YouTube channel. It's been an absolute pleasure sharing the stories of these remarkable people with you. I hope that helps you keep the dream alive, but more importantly, equips you with a few ideas of how to turn those dreams into reality to help you become one of the few too.